Richard Nixon once remarked that environmental concerns were a bipartisan issue because a poisoned river doesn't care what party you're in. The two main political parties in the United States, however, have assumed a position in practice very akin to bipartisanship. But instead of cooperating in the effort to conserve natural resources, they have leaned towards a policy of capture by major corporations and placating the desires of consumer culture. While differing in rhetoric, their actions speak to little practical difference. On an individual and societal level, addressing the limits to our planet's finite resources requires a level of commitment that history shows rarely comes without coercion or collapse. The incentives to abuse the commons are just too strong. As such, the likely outcome will be a further degradation in the environment before things can get better. Tonight, Storm King joins us to discuss things you can do for yourself and your family to get out ahead of civilization's tendency for collective destruction. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to The Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Storm King. We're going to call him Storm for short, uh, but he's a musician. He's a eco person. We'll get into what that means later. Uh, but we're going to talk about right-wing environmentalism. And uh, before I forget, because uh, I wanted to do this last show, uh, we did get a very nice donation from a Bitcoin wallet, starting with the characters 3P. 3P. So thank you. Uh, I'm also joined by my co-hosts, Nick and Hans. Please say hello. Hey. Hey, guys. And uh, Storm, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. My pleasure. Thank you all for having me. Yeah, so not to put you on the spot, but after this sort of <laughs> recent thing in Christchurch, New Zealand, where this guy allegedly, and I'm not really sure any of us truly believe the, tr- the, uh, the official narrative, but he allegedly was an eco-fascist, so I thought we could start off with that topic. What do you think about that concept, that term? What does that even mean? Okay, so the legit usage, in my opinion, of the term eco-fascist, so it first got used as a uh, pejorative again by like your boomer cons and, and neocons against anybody that wanted any kind of uh, regulation of capital uh, in order you know for the environment so that's where the term really came from but legitimately I think it applies to a uh, Finnish deep ecologist named is Penty Lincola who has a lot of very radical takes um, about the environment specifically about overpopulation um, but as it regards the the Christchurch shooting um, so back when on Twitter a couple years ago, kind of right after the Trump phenomenon, um, a lot of guys on the right started to get into environmentalism and realized that because of the American history of um, Republicans being, you know, basically essentially in the pocket of uh, capital and the corporate state or corporations, um, that uh, there was a lot of space to maneuver in terms of 
being an environmentalist, but on the right. And they all, everyone also realized that kind of adding in environmental pro environmental takes to your right wing takes are is good for your optics. It makes you look better. So that is sort of where it came from. But to me, ecofascist is a pejorative because what actually happened was a lot of people saw that there was a lot of really good content here and saw that it would, these are really good arguments and really good things to consider that, you know, for their whole lives haven't been associated with the right wing. So they were basically just slapping pine trees on their names and adding eco to everything without actually making an effort to read the material and learn about it, you know? So that's, that's been a huge issue is, is, is people with these ridiculous, you know, not really necessarily ridiculous, but extreme views of just slapping eco in front of it. And that's what happened with the Christchurch guy. I doubt he's probably hasn't read Kaczynski. Is not familiar with John Michael Greer? Doesn't own um, an intro to ecology textbook. Well, John Michael Greer, um, who I have heard um, at least once on different shows, um, is is an author, and he has a lot of uh, futurist predictions about sort of this coming environmental collapse, and so he's very concerned about kind of our modern economy fitting into a kind of a scarce world, at least in terms of uh, especially oil and things like that. Um, I have a quote that I'm going to read real quick from him that kind of maybe you could look into a certain way in terms of like what he might actually be saying, uh, but just on on the face of it, um, I think it, it's it's a succinct way of putting kind of the collapse um, and uh, resource limitations problems that we're going to be facing. Uh, so he mm-hmm. says, uh, the words uh, we can't go back are just another religious invocation of the great God progress. So to me, that means that basically this this concept of always increasing GDP, increasing the size of the, the systems that we're working with, increasing the complexity, uh, is sort of a modern religion in the sense that it's, it's always upwards and to the right. And the notion that we would have to go back to a simpler time uh, is viewed as almost uh, hellish or heretical. And there, there's something psychologically strange about that. And I actually remember talking to a... Uh, a person from India once and uh, you know, just kind of a random uh, conversation we were having when it came up, but he basically said uh, when he was actually a student in India, he raised his hand once because I think they were trying to teach sort of Western style capitalism and economics to the students at the time. And he said, uh, why does the economy always have to go up? I didn't really have a good answer (laughs) for him. Um, so I think that sort of gets to the heart of this. It's like we're we're sort of um, we're obsessed or addicted to growth at uh, at whatever cost it may actually bring. So yeah, the the addiction metaphor is is really apt because if you th- you know think of humanity uh, as a whole, you know imagine it as one being. Humanity and the economy are addicted to essentially fossil fuel and everything that comes from that. The way that a crack addict is addicted to crack. It's in terms of resource density or energy density it's like um it's a hyper stimulus being that it's it's relatively easy to get and it's packed full of energy more so than anything else and and to speak to the whole myth of progress thing you know it's not it's not even that you can't go back it's that you will go back this cannot go on forever just because petroleum is a limited resource and greer's whole go ahead well, I was just going to mention, um, just to build on that point about the fossil fuel depletion, 
Uh, so th- this is a quote from uh, David Blittersdorf. He's a guy from the formerly the Rocky Mountain Institute. Uh, we have been spending millions of years of solar energy inheritance in the span of about 200 years. That's going to run out. And we're going to have to drastically downscale our energy demand as the daily paycheck of solar income will be all that's left. So what he's saying is basically the, the time it took to build up all those fossil fuels that were burning at a very rapid clip. Uh, and I couldn't tell you exactly how much in total we've burned up in the past 200 years, but that's roughly when the Industrial Revolution has been occurring. Uh, we've gone through uh, a, a substantial amount of it. And if you just look at oil, for example, we're probably past you know, the, the sort of peak levels of new discoveries. And so they right, call that peak, peak, peak oil. Uh, and so we're probably on the downslope. And in order to replenish what we've already uh, burned up, we're going to need another million years uh, or more than a million years uh, to rebuild that the old-fashioned way. So unless we figure out a new radical technology that's going to give us the type of energy that petroleum does, uh, we're going to have to drastically reduce our usage, our demand, as uh, Mr. Blitterstorff mentions. So that that's sort of the, the real scarcity problem that we're running up against. One of the major issues is we're going to have to totally rethink materials engineering in 20, 30 years as peak oil becomes a real phenomena that most of the countries have to encounter. I would say that the majority of modern materials engineering is based on the idea of cheap and frequent supplies of petroleum to refine into plastic substances. Mm-hmm. And if you remove that from most modern-day packaging, from most modern-day um, medical securance, from everything in uh, cooking supply holding, suddenly uh, you see the breakdown of supply chains because people can't determine how to adequately transport products safely, uh, securely, and in, in a healthy format from one area to another. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's going to be a huge problem. And a lot of people don't even know how much of those things come from the petroleum refining process. Right. I'd say, you know, the essential problem that we're looking at, it, I like to think of it in terms of collapse dynamics. So basically everything, functionally everything about industrial society, it, it's really fossil fuel society, if you want to think about it that way. And you've got a limited, uh, you got a limited fuel source. And yet, as technology accelerates, you have increasing uh, maintenance costs. So, you know, think of every new technology as adding complexity, and complexity increases the cost. So you've got a rising demand, and then you've got a finite supply with diminishing returns. Because before we hit peak oil, we'll hit unworkable oil where, where, you know, at some point there'll be zero marginal returns where it costs two barrels in our machines to get two barrels out of the ground. And then it will be negative, and nobody will do it unless they're... You're already seeing that with like uh, yeah. most of the Canadian tar sands. They're almost mm-hmm. unable to extract them um, economically. They're barely even breaking even on most of them now. Uh, Storm, how, how do you account for the bizarre contradiction among the Greens where many of them actually end up favoring fossil fuels over nuclear energy? You know, I don't really, think that's bizarre, nu- but please go ahead. Nuclear energy is largely based on fossil fuels. And by that, I mean the way all the parts move. 
isn't almost entirely uh, the energy for that comes from fossil fuels, the parts for the plant being transplanted, the workers move around with fossil fuels, tons of the stuff involved in building and maintaining and running the nuclear plant um, basically come from fossil fuels from the refining process, all the plastics and stuff. So that's the thing people don't understand about really any kind of alternative fuel source is it's got to not only replace, replace petroleum oil as a direct fuel source. It's also got to replace all the logistics and maintenance and stuff too. You know, like something like nuclear, I look at that as more of a, uh, more like a storage uh, device for fossil fuel energy and less like a, a, a true alternative. Now you could use, you could get to the point probably where nuclear was a true alternative. Uh, I don't know how close or far away we are from that, but it's, it's certainly possible, but something like solar, you know, everything involved in the solar panels we have now is a product of the refining process or uh, petroleum is a crucial, a crucial ingredient to producing the materials in the first place. Like you were talking about earlier with materials engineering. Not even just yeah, but- materials engineering. I mean, the majority of, industrial lubricants are petroleum-based. The majority of catalysts in any modern manufacturing process are petroleum-based. So suddenly you run into a problem where no longer, you know, not only do you no longer have the ability to economically produce energy to power your factory, you can't even, as you were saying, run maintenance costs. You can't even maintain the basic machines. There is not a single machine manufactured on this planet that does not, in some way, utilize petroleum at some point in its life, either through its right. This is a uh, this is oil world. This right. is petroleum world, fossil world. Right. Correct. That that's for, that's true at the at the the moment. Uh, there is a couple of options though going forward that I think would make lubrication, especially, uh, very feasible in the long term. But you would basically have to isolate the usage of petroleum to the critical functions that no other substitute could perform. And what, uh, what our current energy infrastructure is servicing is predominantly transportation fuel, gasoline mm-hmm. in particular, uh, followed by diesel. Uh, so that, that makes up about 70% of the United States is uh, petroleum usage. Now, if you directed the rest of it towards things like plastics and lubrication, uh, you could you could run out the clock uh, much longer than we currently have at at current uh, current usages, um, and then I would also say that plastics are actually not a need to have. Uh, we got bioplastics prior to that famous quote from uh, that uh, Dustin Hoffman movie. Uh, I'm blanking on the Graduate. There you go, um, where the guy said, you know, the future is plastics. And that was in the '60s, and so if you look at old photographs of people living under bridges and things like that in the forties, there was no plastic there. It was all a bunch of tin cans and aluminum and, or not aluminum. It was probably steel and, and tin, uh, things like that. And so you could, you could do packaging using other materials that are much more readily recyclable. And there's, there's actually much more economic, uh, benefits to recycling, uh, metals in particular, as opposed to plastics, which typically just get landfilled and dumped uh, because it's relatively cheap to make them in the first place. Uh, so I would say, you know, there is some cause for optimism, but we do have to change predominantly our transportation system. And that's why the sort of uh, uh, push for electrics makes some sense. Uh, the only problem with that is that the amount of energy that you do have to commit to pushing all those vehicles around uh, is more than what our current 
uh, energy power plant grid can handle. And so you'd end up having to either burn more coal or natural gas, more fossil fuels, or you'd end up having to do something like nuclear mm -hmm. uh, or, or solar. But the cost of solar uh, and wind, especially wind is very expensive relative to, to solar these days. Uh, would just make things much more expensive. So, you know, we can get it done, but the reality is costs are going to go up. And then when costs go up, consumption goes down. And then there's never going to be a point where we actually run out of oil. Uh, you know, there, there's almost no chance of that. It's just going to be, as you were saying, extremely expensive to get out. And the way to think of it, uh, in, in addition to just the, the, the dollars, and you were mentioning this storm about, you know, you'd have to put in two barrels to get two barrels out. Uh, as it stands, uh, this is from James Howard Kunstler, um, and he has, I'm sure, a more authoritative source than this, but what he said is that at the moment, uh, we are getting about five barrels of oil out of the ground for every barrel of energy that we put in. So this is all energy equivalents. It, it takes different forms, of course. There's going to be mm -hmm. uh, you know, natural gas turning a, a turbine to pump something up, uh, or there's going to be gasoline or diesel or something like that. But basically, the energy equivalent of one barrel uh, is, is what it costs you to get five barrels out of the ground, which is a positive return on energy invested. Um, but uh, the problem is the trend has been getting worse. And so back in the nineties, he says that we were at about 20 barrels returned for every barrel that we had to put in, in terms of energy. And in the fifties, it was even higher. It was something like 50 or a hundred barrels for every barrel you had to put in. And so you can see that the trend is getting worse. And that basically means that we're having to look harder and further down and put more effort and energy into getting the stuff out and we're burning it and it's not coming out of the air it's coming out of the ground and so this is going to be a problem yeah well all the all the stuff you just mentioned to me what that sounds like is a world undergoing what greer calls and i really like this term catabolic collapse and it, it it's it mirrors the process of a body that's catabolic, catabolic like a muscle very well because essentially what collapse is the the easiest way to think of it would be uh, a decrease in involuntary decrease in complexity. There's almost no situations in history where a society voluntarily decides to get less complex. It just it just doesn't happen. And so, you know, like you mentioned, they'll be saving the petroleum energy for uh, crucial tasks. That's an aspect of catabolic collapse. The rubber has to start meeting the road. And so a lot of other things are involved in that. Like you see a lot of balkanization things will break up and this actually happened a lot in over and over again in china um, when things would happen the regime would lose power and there'd be a period of balkanization and then as power was solidified again it would go back uh, to being more centralized so all that stuff is catabolic collapse it's a decrease in complexity scarcity things get more local um and i think essentially that's has to be the future without some sort of novel fossil fuel replacement because you constantly will run up against however long it takes it could it's going to be slow and it's going to take a long time but the limited resources and the diminishing returns are going to run up against increasing complexity costs and when they do and it's negative that's a uh, catabolic collapse you know my suggestion suggestion personally is that uh, a good strategy would be to do every do as much as you can local um, and that going without shit that you don't need uh, is probably a really good idea, and that's probably something that would be very smart to get used to. Because you know we're thinking of this in terms of of just uh, material interactions, but there's all kind of stuff that goes with it. You know, 
um, a collapsing society, however slowly, is going to have political instability. And I think we all <laughs> can see all the political instability. Um, resource availability is going to go down. Um, and then at the same time, you have increasing what I, I don't like the term global warming and I don't like the term uh, climate change because what it will really be like, according to my studies, is is climate chaos where the climate gets weird and uh, temperature will be more and weather will be much more unpredictable. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of a lot of things that can be done to slow this process down, but without some sort of, you know, novel uh, novel fossil fuel replacement that's the reality and i and i try to and i encourage people to try to think long term about that because if you do you can attempt to structure life in a way where you're best suited for these type of things you mentioned catabolic collapse what other types of collapses are there well you know there's the hollywood idea of collapse which you you can have those events but it's never going to be like widespread you know i mean you could get a sudden collapse which would be like just for a random example, like um, people people say the gray goose scenario, which is a runaway bit of uh, self-replicating nanomachines that will cover the Earth. You have like an asteroid impact. Uh, you could have some sort of you know deep Earth seismic instability that tons of earthquakes for a month straight everywhere. You know those are possibilities. EMP uh, another, blast over the U.S. Yeah, um, Kessler syndrome, uh, a, a huge solar flare that fries everything at once you know these these things are very unlikely but they are possible mm -hmm. and then you have also regional collapses like hurricane katrina or the what was it the sandy storm yeah winter storm hurricane sandy, hurricane sandy on the yeah, uh, east yeah. coast up in by jersey, jersey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now if you if you're if you're thinking in terms of okay i'm in we're in a situation now where i'm i know i'm in a catabolic collapse because of the way the resources are trending uh, I know I'm in a time of political instability. I know all these things are going on. So if I'm already have that in mind and I'm getting my family and my life ready to deal with those things just in case, then when something like that does happen in your local area, you'll be much more likely to come out to come out well than someone who isn't prepared. I've, I've sort of taken that to the extreme personally. Well, I'd, li I'd like to talk about some of your, your personal approaches um, a little bit later. Um, mm -hmm. but I wanted to make sure that we get through some of the other things that uh, Nick yeah, yeah, sure. wanted to talk about, about environmentalism. Did you want to focus on anything uh, from like Petty Well, Lacola I'd like to, or? I'd like to talk about, start by talking about environmentalism, broadly speaking, on the left, and then contrast that, I suppose, with environmentalism on the right, again, broadly speaking. So I would group, on the left, I would group uh, a couple categories. I would say you have the liberal environmentalists and you have the watermelons you know green on the outside red on the inside and then you have the 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 capitalists and the globalists pulling the strings on both uh what are you what are your thoughts uh, storm on environmentalism on the left uh, it's uh it is people who have fallen for a clever marketing scheme <laughs> none of the, none of those solutions are very good at all there's a thing called eco-futurism and that is where um, your technology, uh, usually in the collective sense, is causing you all kind of problems, so you attempt to throw more uh, more technology at it. And that's exactly like when you have a construction job you can't get done, so you just hire a bunch of guys and throw guys at it. It doesn't it doesn't work. Um, it's or not the, good. It's yeah, the deleterious effects of consumerism. And so the the solution, the prepackaged solution, is green consumerism. Right. Where you just buy new products. You buy things that are pretty much you know they're either worse 
are very slightly better or the difference is negligible, but you feel better about it. Yes. Uh, you shop with your own Publix bag and you feel better. It's almost like purchasing indulgences. Well, yes, you know, exactly. I drive my SUV, but you know, I bought organic kombucha in my own bag, so it's balancing out. Oh, I bought out. a Prius and the nickel yeah. on the battery is, you know, mined in an open pit in Nova Scotia. Right, right. Yeah, what it's, a, it's about, a very clever marketing campaign. What you said about it being a clever marketing campaign. Um, one of the one of my favorite books that I've finished reading recently was um, John. Kenneth Galbraith's *The New Industrial State*, and he notes that you know marketing or advertising in general is sort of a diffused method of achieving general industrial state goals. So you can see this recently in France with the um, the proposed gas taxes that caused this outpouring of uh, of protests by what we now think of as the yellow vests. A lot of that is done not necessarily for helping the climate or for a humanitarian cause, it's to alter consumers' behaviors. It's to alter sort of general economic policy in France. You know, it was intended to shift people away from private car ownership, from private lorry ownership, towards um, state-licensed ownership, towards um, full public transportation, and, and so on. Towards more dependence on the state, Correct. essentially, and, which in turn is more control. Right, and in 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 an increased reliance on the French transportation ministry, um, which is already an incredibly complex bureaucracy and, and sort of industrial network within France, you know, creating an additional layer of reliance and complexity would give uh, whoever was in charge, whoever had major contracts or industrial level contracts with the French tra- transportation industry or ministry, huge amounts of power in the country because they could control you know how exactly people went about getting from a to b every day how much they spent Um, one of galbraith's major works was sort of establishing this link between marketing and price theory the price theory really is uh in many ways acted upon as an external statistical force by marketing um, and often very poorly for the average person right like you can sell something that is cheaper to make that's made in a way that's just as environmentally negative or t- and toxic for the consumer uh, you can sell it for more because what do you you know the average person what do they think when they see something that's got like eco branding right oh well they didn't do the most cost efficient thing because everybody knows the most cost efficient thing is also usually the thing with the most consequences and corners cut and externalized cost which externalized costs don't exist there is no external um, this is we're all in in together with the same web of cause and effect. But uh, so they can sell you this thing that's worse for you in every way because you assume it costs them more to make when it didn't. And so this is this is branding and advertising, uh, ba- basically directly controlling attitudes. And that's sort of like to me that's like what uh, you were talking about in France, and and that's everywhere. That's what right. environmentalism is largely. I think in, in America, we, you know, or North America, we would think of um, Greenpeace as being this sort of, um, I don't know, activist group. And, and you, you see it as a rebelling against a, a corporate system. But Greenpeace is, I think, takes large amounts of corporate donations. It has a very powerful backers, some of whom are involved in um, uh, petroleum transportation, like Warren Buffett. So... A lot of it you can tell is sort of, A, the centralization, which is a key theme, again, of Galbraith and um, and other authors like him. You know, this theme of centralization 
is the ultimate goal. So centralizing efforts um, in anything, in environmentalism, for example, that allows you to uh, affect change the way you want. So let's say you want to utilize Greenpeace as a, a marketing campaign to diminish one of your competitors. Well, that's exactly what people like Buffett did. Buffett used Greenpeace and other organizations like them to campaign against oil pipelines, uh, specifically oil pipelines coming from uh, Canada, from British Columbia, from Alberta, and from uh, Montana. Uh, this was done almost entirely because Buffett owns many petroleum transportation railroads, and this would have been a huge threat to uh, one of his primary businesses under Berkshire. So you can see these uh, as sort of uh, extraneous forces acting on the market. They're not really used um, for the better good. They're used to placate people's sensibilities that something is clearly not going right. Something's clearly not right when you can see the air, when you can see yellow and brown haze in every major American city. Um, right. And, and, and they're, they're all your testosterone is like a quarter of your granddad's and, right, and the right, ocean and, is and full what, of trash and and yeah. Western sperm counts have declined for 70 years straight, and no one can figure out why. I mean, everyone knows something is wrong. Everyone knows something's wrong. Everyone can feel it in their bones, something's not right. Um, and I think that, you know, to a large extent as well, these organizations, because they are organizations, because they're centralized, they have a, a branding. So the branding of Greenpeace and the other major environmental organizations are hippie losers, are people that, you know, burn down boats, people that cause problems, people that um, are generally degenerate or degenerate looking in terms of aesthetic. And so this dissuades people from trying to align themselves with real environmental policies because they believe that to be an environmentalist is to be one of these people. These people are attracted by Greenpeace, they're empowered, and you know, it, it becomes sort of a self-perpetuating cycle until you wind up, you know, almost the year 2020 and Pollution has never been worse, and most of the planet is staring down environmental collapse. I think the insect population of the planet has declined by 40% now. That's right. No, no one exactly uh, understands how to fix the problem, um, but certainly no one wants to be associated with people that are talking about fixing it because they're some of the worst people you can imagine. If right, it's set up exactly so you don't do what the most effective thing would be. You're you're guided by all basically all these different tentacles of capital to not do what the real thing would be. No one's going to listen. That the that the answer is a voluntary decomplexification. It's in many senses a return to tradition. Um, it's it's a it's a return to a decentralized um, something that it, you could even call it like a neo yeoman type situation. You know these are revolutionary acts. Like anything you do with Greenpeace or anything like that. These like slickly branded corporate environmentalist things it doesn't matter you're not you're not helping what would help more than any of that stuff is if you just grow some food in your backyard even that is so much better than any of that shit Couple when you points. have the oh go ahead uh, uh, you have the pro reactionary elements on the american right that in response to this what they do is they say oh well i'm going to i'm going to buy another truck <laughs> well, you're, you're sort of making the dichotomy that. between the kind of redneck rebellion against the leftists uh, by going completely 180, you know, in any sensible fashion uh, that would help the environment to just kind of 
protest the the political ideology that they don't generally like, even though the some of the some of the points those people may be making actually may be correct. I, I th- I well, you, you shouldn't let your you shouldn't let things you do be controlled by the fact that your enemy does something. Yeah. So therefore, you must not like. Oh, these guys yes. care about the environment. Well, I hate it. The environment exactly. sucks because mm-hmm. I'm this, a real this man. That is precisely this my point. Very stupid. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's that's very stupid. Yeah. And um, uh, and the ahead, the poster please. boy. Sorry. Uh, the poster boy for this is Theodore John Kaczynski because he did a bunch of crazy stuff that uh, you know we all we all see that as insane. Like especially. Why would you bomb a computer store owner and stuff like that? But if you read his manifesto, it's just right on the money, along with his other works, technological slavery. He's, you know, so, oh, he can't be right because he was crazy. Everything he said is therefore wrong. No, this is stupid. You shouldn't think this way. You should do your, you know, do your own research and and dig into it and don't, don't not care about the environment because, you know, leftists with dreads that smell bad do. Well, a couple points, if I may, uh, Hans was mentioning the pollution being, you know, worse than it's ever been, and, and on a global scale, he's—I'm almost certain right. I haven't looked at the numbers, but what's happened, and this is sort of what I wanted to put a caveat to, is that the source of the pollution has moved to third-world countries, basically, or second-world countries, in particular with China. Uh, the the globalization that has sort of unleashed a lot of economic wealth for, especially the uh, the wealthy, uh, and given lower prices at the expense of jobs in the developed world, has moved much of the traditional manufacturing and production that used to take place in places like America and Western Europe uh, to places like uh, the former communist countries and Latin America, where the environmental controls are much laxer and there is a relatively higher amount of poverty, and so people are more motivated to work and work at lower wages and so there is the shifting of pollution rather than the reduction of it or in fact it may be an increase um, if you look at the entire planet but in america uh, i can confidently say that there has been a reduction of some forms of pollution uh, in particular air pollution uh, in particular water pollution there have been some successes if you at least look at a certain portion of the planet problem is though the consumption that goes on in the developed world is driving much of the pollution elsewhere so that was one point i just wanted to make i'm sure everybody's aware of that but just wanted to you know under, let me underline res- that but go ahead let me throw in something there so i would say that's that is in large part part of the plan it's the the way in which the pseudo green movements are in service of capital and globalization because if you look at something like the Kyoto Protocols, that's exactly what they do: is they put restri- restrictions on the Western world and they allow uh, the so-called developing world or perpetually eternally developing world. That's a good point. I'd never thought of it as sort of that was their intention all along to allow the kind of uh, economy to expand by just hiding the pollution. That's interesting. Yeah, there's also another example of externalities, which you know it looks to the people doing this like okay, so the pollute the 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 real cost of the pollution has now been externalized to China, yet we are continuous on a globe with China. (laughs) So once again, you know, to me that's that just reads like simple min maxing. Oh yeah, I'm going to make it where it's the cheapest, where I can do it for the cheapest, and I'm going to sell it where it's the most expensive. And bonus, I get an HR boost because now I've signed this agreement. Well, that, yeah, that was I mean, my, my second point, If I before I forget it, if I could just make this. Um, the 
the the incentives that are driving people to do all this stuff i think is is what we need to figure out because as as you say storm it's it's correct and, tr- and right and and not wrong that people can come to these sort of rational conclusions that yes we are depleting our our sort of uh if we have children's their their future uh, their environmental inheritance their their resource inheritance yet we continue to do so uh because if we if we you know withdraw from this very uh resource intensive economy we become less significant less powerful with less status I think that's sort of the main problem here is that there are incentives set up for people to exploit and to uh, increase their consumption in the short term in order to get ahead in the sort of uh, sexual marketplace and the sort of business marketplace. All these things are set up and aligned that they are rewarded for their behavior. I think ultimately what it comes down to is they're not being irrational, at least in some ways, because they're doing it because they get rewarded for it. And I think that the trick is to figure out a way to disincentivize that behavior. And this is really what the sort of climate tax stuff in theory is about. Now, I don't trust that for one minute because it's coming from certain government agencies that I don't like. But the idea is sort of getting to the point that you have to basically take into account human greed uh, when you're Mm -hmm. talking about behavior outcomes. And if you don't, you can't you're just not being realistic. People are greedy and they're not all going to be uh, good choir, choir boys and choir girls. So they're just not going to behave like that. Just history does not show that. And the, the incentives are not there. So we have to figure this out in a, in a sort of real politic fashion. I, I would argue. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you, you get what you incentivize and everything is incentivized for the current paradigm. And I'm fatalistic about it. Um, I don't, if you're honest with yourself, I think you'll. Most people would come to um, a reasonably fatalistic outlook. I think that essentially, uh, globalist neoliberal capitalism, with very little regard for the environment beyond the superficial, will play itself out over the coming years uh, as it runs up against catabolic collapse. And you know, I, I, uh, that that to me is is a pretty. You can pretty much bet on that, aside from some sort of black swan event. So that's why I implore people get think with that in mind live with that in mind get ready for these things can i um can i ask you a question well, i actually have one point i want to say mm-hmm. before i ask a question about catabolic collapse you know a lot of these greenpeace types a lot of these you know the the mainstream environmentalists let's call them are totally anodyne in their opinions too they're, they're very um they're very rote they have a very 1970s mindset, not like a 1960s mindset in how to deal with environmental problems or what an environmental problem is. You know, here's something that uh, you know it's almost exclusively talked about in our circles, and that would be um, pollution of water supply. You know, what are you finding in water supply now? It's not so much toxic chemicals uh, that we think of historically, like petroleum byproducts or some kind of methamphetamine byproducts from you know drug use, like. You're not even finding industrial byproducts of, of any kind uh, very much anymore. Um, what you are finding are things like estrogen. You're right. You're, EDCs. You're, you know, this is something that almost no one has talked about. There's a, there's a there was a doctoral thesis uh, at Lund University three years ago, and it basically determined that there was a direct correlation or a very high level of causation between um, 
estrogen and birth control pills and the fish population near and around Sweden. That they had been uh, severely impacted and there had been an epigenetic change found amongst uh, native populations of fish. Now, where is the Greenpeace outcry on this issue? Well, you'll never hear it. Because a lot, you know, a lot of these organizations, again, they're highly centralized and they're controlled, are uh, associated with the general economic and cultural outlook or agenda of the global center left. That means endless birth control. That means depopulation, not for the sake of, you know, good family formation policy or for real environmentalism, but for the sake of limiting people's ability to actually extend their wealth to a family. Uh, a lot of these uh, factions are actually very much aligned, because mostly because they're all paid for by the same people. Well, right. so what, what will they tell you if you say to one of these people... You know, if you ring the alarm bells about estrogen in the water, I bet a bunch of I've I've been told this and I've heard this said. Well, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe we don't need to be need to all be so male and angry all the time. Maybe that's good for the world. Right. So you know, epigenetic uh, change and sort of uh, some kind of stream. If you look at it statistically, some kind of bimodal distribution of epigenetic change around the world. You know, overwhelmingly now in Western countries where this is a more predominant chemical compound found. It seems uh, asymmetric. It seems unfair, like Nick was bringing up with the Kyoto Protocol, and that's been one of the chief issues with you know any kind of real manufacturing inside the, inside the United States. I mean, at, at no point is is manufacturing going to be completely clean. That's ridiculous, and no one really thinks it will be. You can hit a certain point where you do not do as much damage, or in fact, you can over time repair it. Um, and most U.S. manufacturing, I think, could hit that point, could actually be uh, a cause for good. But the problem is that it takes significant capital investment, and it takes a significant amount of time to develop technologies that actually function that way. If you remove the ability to actually manufacture, to actually develop products, to actually invest in R&D, you'll never actually achieve those goals. So there's sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that's been inflicted on American manufacturers. Right. You won't, you won't get these things until they're profitable. I mean, that's just right. the reality. Right. Uh, to this end, I, I'm curious to tease out as much as we can. What is the philosophical or ideological root of why the neoliberal is plunging headlong into this abyss? And in that spirit, I would like to read a brief quotation. Man should never fall into misconception that he has really risen to be lord and master of nature. Rather, he must understand the fundamental necessity of the rule of nature and comprehend even his own existence is subordinated to these laws of eternal struggle. And who said this? Was that Madison uh, Grant? Albert Einstein. Close. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. And... I would say I the extent known, to which I'm, I'm not, always, not always too fond of trying to do the left-right game. However, the distinction I'd be most comfortable with is that the left tends towards a man-centric view of the cosmos, whereas the right or the true right is representative of people who try to accord with the eternal laws of nature. That's, uh, that's precisely it. That's my view. Okay, so with this in mind... Uh, I'm glad, very glad Hans brought up Madison Grant because I think very few people know 
to what extent Madison Grant is probably not only the greatest American conservationist, but one of the greatest conservationists who has ever lived. Okay, he is responsible uh, almost more so than John Muir for the existence of national parks in the United States, and he, he pioneered it. And what I found very interesting was when you when you dig around, I was curious what the left thought of this. Okay, so this is from Mother Jones. <clears throat> Conservationists would understandably rather forget all of this. Of course, referring to Grant being a Nordicist and a hardcore immigration restrictionist, as well as an anti-Semite. Um, but it's worth remembering because the movement, and of course they're referring to environmental movement or conservation movement, has always struggled with elitist and exclusionary elements in its ranks. Among other things, this country invented and exported worldwide the model of uninhabited national parks, together with its ugly corollary, forced removal of indigenous populations. It is also worth remembering Grant's history because minority groups remained vastly underrepresented, just 22% of all visitors at last count in our national parks, and even more so in the leadership of environmental agencies and nonprofits. To change that, the conservation movement needs to acknowledge that the ghost of Madison Grant still haunts the natural wonders he helped protect. Whew. Oh, man. I remember seeing like some, some guy tweeting this out like with a picture of a black guy, and it's like, there's not enough black people in in our campgrounds or something like that. I mean, it's just like they, they're running out of shit to complain yeah, about. Okay. This is so I have, I have, I, stupid. There's a lot I could say about this. Like, look, I, I live think, um very very close to one of these places. I'm actually the the last house before you get to it, and I, that was done on purpose so we could I could be near work and also have um, a good outdoors, you know, uh, wild nature place to go to. And I live in a pretty diverse part of the country. Being in the South, there's a lot of black people, a lot of Hispanics. I've literally never seen a single one in the national park. Not even one time. Yeah, they it just, just seems it's just they just don't like it. It's, it's, not their it's, thing. it's Madison and Grant's that, fault. There was, I mean, uh, right, was, and that that there's a corollary a, this, of that with. Uh, <laughs> All right, somebody pick, <laughs> go. <laughs> oh my god! All right, look, I'll say it. There's a corollary. Um, between those people not going out in the parks and the pollution coming from the third world. They just, um, for whatever reason, it seems to be in, in their, I guess, their blood or their DNA. They just don't give a shit. They're yeah. okay. I mean, if you look at India, people are just living in trash, and they're okay with it. India is horrendous. I've mentioned this before, but if you go to uh, Elephanta Island off the uh, the coast of Bombay, their big business capital, um, it's a tourist attraction, and the beaches are covered, literally covered in plastic, filth, and trash. And there are signs uh, telling, I, I guess, the locals, because the people I was with on the sort of tour boat weren't dropping trash, that's for damn sure, telling the locals to not not litter. But I think what was happening was the bay was so <laughs> polluted that it was basically just kind of landing there. Uh, and it's, I mean, China is bad, but India is the worst I've ever seen it. Yes, it's so, a literal what, trash world. What these people refuse to consider, to them, Grant's Nordicism is, uh, or rather, his his conservationism is this aberration. You'll see if you look at the the AIDS-ridden comments in this article, for example, you'll see people argue something to that effect. They will say essentially. Oh well, sometimes bad people can do good things. Well, explain as well the in, the conservationist and animal protection legislation that occurred under the Third Reich. 
Now, what makes more sense, which these people will not consider, is that, in fact, conservationism was an ineluctable aspect of his Nordicism. Okay, these two things. This is make, I. Yeah, please. Yeah, no, you're like they make it makes total sense. It makes total sense once you once you accept that there are laws of nature, they cannot be changed. Um, there is there's nothing you can do about it. Actually, you know, it's now just the idea that things are a certain way is almost a right wing view. Like inherent in, that something has inherent qualities, something has properties proper to it because it is what it is. You know, you can't. Like this, there's so much space to move on the right with environmentalism because we can make appeals to nature, and the left can't do that because everything about everybody is a social construct and is made up. Yeah, it's all malleable. Right. Yes, and to that end, I mean, it obvi- it's obvious, but might as well talk about it, which is the effect of population growth and mass, mass migration into the West that uh, can despoil the natural wonders of the North American continent, something that Grant acutely was acutely aware of well ahead of his time. Right. If you, if you bring people into the country um, that have a low level of consumption due to poverty, let's say people in India or China, these big polluters, and you bring them here, they will consume at a Western level and then pollute at their natural level. So you're, you're taking people who have the penchant for this and you're just giving more fuel for the fire. You understand what I mean? Like they're going to do the same third world behavior, but they're going to have mountains upon mountains of more trash to be able to make because the level of consumption is going to be so much higher. That's that's what he understood. Yes, there's actually a book written about Grant uh, called "Defending the Master Race: Conservation, Eugenics, and the Legacy of Madison Grant." I have not read it, but I uh, intend to at some point. Is that by Jonathan Spiro? Yes, that sounds good. Yeah, you know, it's Grant. Grant wasn't, Grant wasn't a, like a, a kook either. I mean, first of all, he was probably um, one of the most influential members of sort of the the um, turn of the century Gilded Age Manhattan aristocracy, and he was close friends with the Roosevelt family. Uh, in fact, I think that um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote several favorable reviews. Of Grant's various works, um, included the reviews on the front cover. Or, I'm sorry, on the front flap. And he was a. They were very much aligned families. He was also um, very staunch friends with uh, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was the man who basically created the New York Zoological Society and helped to build up um, the American History of Natural History. Yeah, American Museum of Natural History. Um, he also it was incidentally the guy who named the Trinosaurus Rex and the Velociraptor. But he was also uh, an important member of the sort of uh, Manhattan aristocratic environmentalist group. Now, all of them had these general, uh, I guess you know, racial ideas. Um, they also were all very, uh, I would say, sophisticated and highly educated and highly intelligent people. Um, these men, you know, had the resources and the time and the energy to spend analyzing and studying these issues and coming up with large-scale solutions. I mean, Madison Grant basically uh, enacted his ideas in major policy, and that was the Immigration Act of 1924. The Immigration Act of 1924 was the Madison Grant Immigration Act, basically, and that 
halted majority of immigration into the country until 1965. And they were deeply responsible for building up the U.S. Geological Society, for building up uh, the majority of national parks in this country, for accumulating and fundraising for capital from the Carnegie Foundation, from the Rockefellers, from a lot of these you know, American oligarchs, um, to actually preserve huge swaths of American territory for, uh, for hunting, for conservation, for sightseeing, um, and just general preservation of native ecosystems. Yeah, he was he was a deeply committed person. He didn't just do this out of racism. He deeply believed that this was his his calling and his goal in life was to preserve as much as he could of the old Amer- uh, North American wilderness. To preserve everything he could of what is beautiful in this world, man and plant and beast alike. It's inspiring. I love that. I I wasn't familiar with any of that, and I think I'm actually going to get the book you referenced. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I think it would be something that you'd find interesting. And a point I wanted to make as well is that you could approach any basic bitch environmentalist type and you could put forward to them the argument that, well, industrial society exists now and because of it, it's necessary to take active measures to preserve ecosystems. They would nod their head. But then if you were to apply the exact same argument to man and to say that, well, now man is no longer living at a subsistence level and you have civilization and you have uh, a middle class, it's necessary to take active measures to uh, make sure that man is conditioned in a way that he is uh, that he previously would have been under under a stricter relationship to nature. Well, that would be a difficult – that's a difficult trick to pull, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my view essentially is uh, is that I would say the Industrial Revolution is largely not worth it. And I would say that for a lot of different reasons, um, one of them being the pollution. But that's not necessarily like even the most concerning thing to me. Um, it is how man has become domesticated by it. You know, the more compl- technologically complex your society is, the more um, the more complex the norms are. Uh, the more conditioning is required and discipline mm-hmm. um, to be able to live in that society and uh, you know have have it function with enough people observing all these rules. and this this very psychologically complex for people, and it creates a lot of mental illness. you know, uh, like like Kaczynski says, everyone is over socialized and and it makes our bodies weak in the way that, you know, when there are harsh the harsh selection the harsh selection pressures of nature, um, keep the people healthy uh, across generations. When you remove yep. those and you have a modern medical system uh, that fills the gaps, you get these perverse uh, evolutionary incentives where like, people who are very compliant are selected for. People who can sit in an office under fluorescent lights uh, rearranging abstractions all day are selected for. <laughs> you know, People with a very high tolerance to those things. And so you don't get the very good selection pressures of nature that make people strong and and vital and smart and quick uh, and devoted to family and the preservation of their environment. You don't get that anymore. Now you have a perverse incentives um, that whoever is a good little drone for capital, a good little slave, a good little follower of uh, the current political or political orthodoxy. That's who's selected for, you know. And, and I also think that no, go ahead, interject. Well, and this brings to what exactly the the broadly speaking again the left's conception of nature even is. Because we would say nature is not separate. Na- nature is part. I mean, you could go, I think to them, it's, it's nice green things. 
But nature is no less present in the Sahara Desert as it is in the Amazon rainforest. It, it, it's, all, it's all nature. The laws are constant. Yeah, and there's... The, they have a very pacified view of what nature is, which is why they, they... These are the people who, when they watch an Animal Planet program, they're rooting for the gazelle. Right, they imagine, you know, they, they sort of implicitly, and, and a lot of times without thinking about it, take the attitude of man the conqueror who stands on top of nature having dominated and, oh, we just need to better need to be better stewards, you know, but this is not the case. <laughs> nature is vast and inside you, and it operates on scales that boggle your mind that you can't understand, and on the tiniest scales possible, you, you, are, you are nothing in the face of nature. Nothing. And when you respect that, and then this causes a respect for the laws, a respect for the way things are, how they really work, and con- and you know the real consequences that are generated from disrespect of nature, that's sort of, I think, the, the dispositional difference between a left environmentalist and what you'd call a right environmentalist is it, it hinges on the person's view of nature. And a good example of this would be an outgrowth of green movement type thinking or lifestyle environmentalism would be veganism. I, I do have some – I won't get into the subject of vegetarianism, which I do have some respect for if grounded on the right principles. But veganism, I have zero respect for. And Ted Nugent has a very good uh, – we will link in description. He has a very good one-minute takedown of veganism. And what he points out is that your soybeans and your tofu, they're grown on, on farms where the farmers have to kill every living being in order to ensure that those things uh, can be can be harvested. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's an insect holocaust every every time you eat your little your little soylent. Yeah, not <laughs> just insects. I mean rodents, birds, uh, reptiles, birds. Yeah, everything. everything. It all has to yeah. die in order for you to have a tofu salad, and it, it's it's this willing willful ignorance of it. It's it, they they don't want to look further because they they want to maintain their their pacified view and man-centric view of how nature operates, that it operates according to what they will it to operate. If they want it to be a nice thing, a soft thing, a cuddly thing, then it is. And you don't, you don't have to look any further. Isn't it also about status? I mean, when they're sort of, and this is, I think, why people instinctually who are not vegan or vegetarian instinctually dislike being around these people because they can't shut up about how they're vegan in front of other people. They're signaling their virtue to others who they deem less virtuous. And without that stuff, they really have nothing else because they're usually very emaciated looking people. They're not physically fit, impressive people. Frankly, they're not even that intelligent generally. They're just sort of trendy people that like to follow uh, what seems to be uh, the the latest thing, which is a very feminine trait, if I might, might add. And so this is your canonical soy boy who's basically latching on to something that is basically going to give him some ability to stand above the, uh, for better or for worse, uh, strapping redneck who drives a big pickup truck who can beat the shit out of him if he was allowed to. Uh, but he lives in a society I think where that's not okay. There's an element of this, but I, I think religion, I think, uh, is a, is a, uh, better explanation. Well, progressivism is religion. Status. Yeah, they're cultists in the myth of progress in, in the church of yeah. neoliberalism. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and, and these people, the way they think, that that thinking is what uh, Kaczynski outlines as over-socialization. So they have this deep knowing of their own inferiority, and they feel inferior in a large part because of their failure. You know, they know, they're conscious of all their wrongs and their sins and, and doing all these things they're quote-unquote not supposed to do. Uh, and so they have to find some way 
to to absolve themselves of this inferiority. And a lot of times it's signaling about being a vegan or, or owning a Prius. Most of the time what it's about is and, and there's a lot of this nowadays is where, you know, what I'm going to do is, even though I'm not a member of this marginalized group, I'm going to become a champion for this member, uh, for the for this marginalized group, because that way I can sublimate um, my own desire to purge myself of inferiority by uh, representing against the big scary evil these marginalized people. So they, you know, they I call can that a white savior. Their inferiority. They call that a white savior. Yeah, white savior. And, 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 and yeah. Brown people say that, and they actually resent that shit because they know what it's designed to do. It's basically to put them as the sort of uh, person getting a handout from someone who's better than them. Uh, and right. at least the smarter ones are aware of that, at least. I mean, the, the sort mm-hmm. of less uh, less concerned are happy to take the gibbs, of course. But um, they, they're ex- These people, they're externalizing their inferiority complex and then retroactively going back and trying to get rid of it. Yeah. The truth is that they feel that these people they're representing are actually inferior, and that's why they want to do it because this is a, a proxy for them uh, getting rid of their own feelings of inferiority. I I have a question on this yeah. regard, Storm. So I've known people who they are you would say they're vaguely on the political left, but they're also among many things uh, genuine uh, outdoorsmen, woodsmen. Uh, people who actually don't live a very bourgeois lifestyle, who do limit their possessions and are not, uh, you know, mindless consumers. Uh, but if you were to ask them over dinner or what have you about politics, they they would tend towards generally the political left. Do you see an opportunity with the rising tide of color for these people to have a, a switch flicked? Yes, absolutely, and that's exactly the demographic you're going to be having in mind when you're trying talking about right-wing environmentalism and how you want to present it and what it's going to be and what it should look like, which is one of the main reasons that skeleton mask shooting uh, eco-fascist shit is retarded uh, because that's basically – you you know a lot of people that are just like the person you just described will see that shit that happened in New Zealand and be like, oh, well, never having anything to do with that, where if you, you would have come at them better – more in the vein of us talking here, they could have been won over easily because the truth is, is that those people are looking for genuine concern for the things that matter to them, the outdoors, health, nature, etc. And we can provide that a lot better than the left can provide that because number one, we can be real about nature. Number two, um, we're not uh, completely cordycepted by these capital drones like Greenpeace. Some of this fits in line. Um, I mentioned, uh, Grant's friend and sort of political ally, Henry uh, Henry Fairfield Osborne. Well, his son um, wrote a book many years later after both men had died called Our Plundered Planet. And his general thesis was that uh, a lot of this humanitarianism that we're talking about, this sort of post-war humanitarianism, post-war uh, deconstructionalism, anti-colonialism, much of this once infused with uh, a general um, modern capitalist economic system would actually lead to outsized growth limits, that there would basically be um, no real way of limiting growth, and it would sweep past the planet's uh, carrying capacity very quickly. That's a very Lincolnian view. He he has uh, several observations that, that basically gel right in with that. Yeah, and interestingly, you mentioned uh, limits to growth. So there's a an older book called Limits to Growth, and then I've just now got the uh, the 30 year update, and they have what they call the World Three Computer Model, 
and it's basically taking all of the the trends from the world economic uh, pollution health basically all these key markers of i guess what you'd call like the best description uh, descriptors of like what a human reality is like global and they they run them in this in this program and right around 2050 there's an insane crash and they run they you know they run this over and over and over and over and over again 2050 around this this insane crash starts and, and it crashes real hard over like the next 20 years uh, being completely bottomed out at uh, 2100. But if they stabilize the growth in this model, it all evens out and it stays even till then. So the person you're talking about and what you just described basically came to the same conclusions as this intensive study of world trends from the book Limit, Limits to Growth, which is very impressive that that was done. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about the limits to growth um, on our last show with Dark Enlightenment and Masonius also joined us for that show. Uh, that was the Colonies episode. And the original projections uh, were a little bit off, but uh, Masonius was sort of pointing out that there were um, there were some sort of technological breakthroughs that, that happened that made the prediction um, less accurate than than it could have been. But in the sort of uh, conditions that we're sort of looking at going forward, uh, he sort of foresees that it it's more likely. Um, basically, the... Uh, yeah, I think it'll be more or less right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's worth checking out. But, I mean, all these things, and this is what makes this very difficult, and even to give some credit to the people who have studied climate science, quote-unquote, um, we're dealing with incredibly complex systems, and the models that are used to try to simplify them to gain some insight into likely future outcomes are, are just that they're simplified models. They're not taking into account every factor and it's just simply impossible to do so. And so you end up cutting things out and if you cut out the wrong things, then your model is not going to be accurate. Uh, but what you can do is you can look at general trends uh, and typically trends are, are somewhat more stable uh, in uh, as opposed to complex simulations where you're looking at multiple factors. Uh, if you look at charts, uh, you can you can sort of see ups and downs that, that generally have some consistent behavior. Uh, and the the truth is, you know, you've just you've just seen in oil in particular, you've seen a a recent spike uh, in the discoveries of oil that only occurred because of shale fracking technology uh, and uh, but but two things about that one uh, the actual peak oil curve prediction was actually pretty damn accurate until that happened about 10 years ago and the second thing to know is that that spike is somewhat of an outlier or an anomaly because the depletion rates on fracking wells is incredibly high compared to traditional wells and so you're basically looking at fracking into the ground and then you've got that thing going for maybe three years until it runs out uh, and then you have to move on or at least it, it runs out to the point where it's not economically viable to pump anymore and so then you're off you know, looking for your next spot and so again this is why the cost of energy uh, to put into this process is much higher now because as opposed to something like in Saudi Arabia where they have that massive oil field that basically just sort of oozes oil from the sand where they just have to put in a, a literal like straw to pull the stuff out 
fracking is you have to go down, you have to then put an elbow in, go sideways, drill rock out, then shoot in high pressure water to break it up. I mean, it is so energy intensive to do that. And the, the likelihood of that being sustainable versus something like, you know, what Saudi Arabia has got going is, uh, is pretty low. And then also the, the recent discoveries in uh, Venezuela, if you believe them, and there are reasons maybe to be skeptical of them because of the sort of political uh, turmoil there and sort of the, the motivations the politicians there may have to exaggerate the sort of wealth the country has. Uh, the fact is the, the oil in Venezuela is much, uh, I think it's much heavier, I think is the, the, the term. And basically uh, what it boils down to is you have to process it much more heavily there's, as opposed uh, to the stuff in there's several, there's Yeah, there's uh, several chemicals that are present that require a lot of additional refining. That basically makes it prohibitively expensive in most cases to actually refine or ship Venezuelan oil. Um, for a while, the Chinese were actually shipping and refining it for the Venezuelans at cost just to keep the uh, the Venezuelan government alive. Yeah, to keep a reliable source, potentially. I mean, China is coming up on, I think, it, it is currently, I believe, the second... Uh, the second largest consumer of oil or petroleum, I should say, in the world. And they are the biggest polluter. And so they burn a lot of coal. And so that makes up for the the, the, the lower amount of uh, petroleum consumption in that country versus the United States, which is still number one. Um, but they, they are aggressively pursuing uh, the reserves around the world. So they've set up a lot of deals in Africa, which most people know about. Uh, I wasn't actually aware of the Venezuelan one. That's interesting. Uh, they're constantly in negotiations with Russia to build pipelines. Uh, and they have major uh, supplies coming from the Middle East, in particular Iran. Uh, the The point I'm making here, though, is that as opposed to, I don't know, the 1980s even, um, we're looking at a completely different consumption pattern. I mean, the amount of oil that was consumed in the 1980s was probably half of what it is on a daily basis than it is now. We're up to close to 100 million barrels per day. And so you're looking at 50 million, you know, 1980 and 30 million in 1960. I mean, it just keeps going up and up and up and up. And so if India ramps up and tries to become like what China became, uh, and match their sort of growth in manufacturing and industrialization and automobile usage. I mean, we're talking about peak oil much sooner than what they were even predicting back in the 50s. I mean, it's just it's just a massive increase in consumption. So this stuff can't go on. I mean, it, it's it's not possible. All right, you you always run up against limited resources with diminishing returns on extraction versus constantly increasing complexity. Complexity that increases on its own from the natural effective technology making other technologies possible in development and then also it, it must get more complex to deal with the fact that the resources are continually going to get harder to get this is this is the problem in my opinion yeah and and so things are going to get more expensive and basically people are going to have to make substitutions for what they're currently consuming uh and that's going to be interesting it's definitely going to be interesting the quality of life uh you know it make it better depending on your perspective but it's going to change that's for damn sure I have a there's a question I wanted to ask in regards to this particular form of collapse that we've been sort of on and off speaking about. And that had to do with um, breakdown in intelligence, breakdown in human capital growth. Um, Storm, is there is there any aspect of it that has to do with uh, not only a declining general intelligence in the population, but a, a declining technical vocabulary amongst general population? Um, 
a declining uh, ability to actually reverse engineer products or understand how products work, uh, and a declining ability to invest in uh, real important R&D, such as the case of, uh, you know, we're talking about earlier, synthetic lubricants, let's say, as opposed to um, R&D for uh, delivery of digital content. You know, are, are things like that part, or could they be part of the general collapse we're talking about? Not only could they be, but they are. I mean, I discussed earlier the um, the way industrial society kind of it's like an insulator for uh, selection pressures, and that is a big it, it's a big uh, hit on the quality of the average person, just their general quality. And then you know the other aspect of this is that if all the people are getting worse, they're not getting more intelligent. And there's several books that deal with um, they call it like the brain drain or the general trend of um, IQ lowering everywhere. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely part of it. And then you know, it's not like you can get a what is essentially a free market capitalist society to uh, research things that are important rather than things that are profitable. So yeah, that's going to play in it for sure. Now, some of that may get rolled back a little bit. There may be more of an emphasis on what's important as things get more dire. But if it's the situation causing you to refocus on what's important, then it's already too late. This, these are things that have to be done ahead of time so you're ready f- for that point. Because by the time you've adapted to the new worse normal, there will be a new new worse normal, and you'll always be trying to play catch-up. So yeah, that's that's definitely part of it. I think you may have mentioned one of your previous in, uh, interviews uh, citing John Michael Greer, but he says collapse now and avoid the rush. Yes, this is my lifestyle motto. <laughs> so <laughs> learn learn how to live with less uh, when it's it's still... You know, there's there's high speed internet, so you can look up how to do it, kind of thing. I mean, it's gonna get. Um, I mean, la- here's here's a simple you know factor that everybody can relate to. Things are just getting more crowded. I mean, if you want to go off and live in the woods, you better look for some land earlier rather than later, because the prices are gonna go up with more and more people coming in, especially into the West where they seem to be gravitating towards. I mean, certainly where I grew up, it, it's hell of a lot more crowded than when I remember it. I remember going on trips to national parks and you'd hear like people speaking in German and now you just have a bunch of Indian people there and they have to actually bus people in, you know, on, on a schedule because they can't allow the parking anymore. There's, there's it's what Edward Abbey called wheelchair tourism. <laughs> I like that. Like, a, no, um, yeah, go ahead. Collapse now and avoid the rush. This is one of my favorite sayings because it, it, <laughs> it, 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 uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, um, we, as, as members of industrial technological society get a lot of our stuff unnecessarily through this incredibly complex middleman. You know, like I have carrots at my house that have come from who knows where across how many trucks through how many complex business interactions and regulations and everything else. When, if I really wanted to, I could just buy carrots that someone grew here, uh, tax free with cash easy, or I could grow my own carrots. So the extent to which you can cut out the middleman uh, and that you can learn the skills that enable you to do that, that would be collapse now and avoid the rush. Like mm-hmm. I got when I got wind of this stuff, I was lucky because my wife's side of the family has a, a very remote house um, that sort of belongs to everybody in the family at, at uh, near a lake. It's like a really part of a very large river system. And um, so we've I've begun collapsing now and avoiding the rush centered around there. You know, that's where I've got a lot of stuff. And that's basically what you'd call like your bug out location. You know, if there's a some kind of natural disaster here or some sort of huge riot or something, that's where we'll be headed. 
Well, I, I encourage anyone who has the means to do so. Uh, the only sort of difficulty in our current system, obviously, is making money in a remote location. I mean, if you're, yeah, I don't know, a programmer or something. I mean, that's the sort of canonical example people give. Uh, but I, I, realistically, most people can't do that, and even programmers have a difficult time doing that because you know just the way corporations work. It's you know they require FaceTime, and and your political status goes down if you're constantly out of the loop, and so it's difficult to to maintain the sort of uh, zog buck income levels uh, if you want to do that outside of the cities, uh, and that could be you know some conspiracy you know to keep it that way i think it's more likely that's perhaps part of it agenda 21 perhaps but i think the main reason is that cities are just so goddamn efficient and that's mm-hmm. why people go there yeah it's, it's a confluence of interests yeah i think so and so it's a, it's a natural confluence of interests yeah and you have to basically learn to live with less of the current system's goodies but there are a lot of upsides to living outside the system and in the cities in particular. I mean, one thing is that you could see the stars at night, if anybody cares about that. Um, That's it's huge. A hell of a lot quieter. You can probably go to sleep a little bit easier if you're uh, prone to insomnia um, because there's less distractions. There is just a, a wealth of beauty inherent in nature that I think a lot of people really miss out on and it's a good place to raise children i would argue because it's a it's a natural environment for what that's worth but it's also um it's away from a lot of the problems of modernity that modernity brings in terms of the temptations uh the sort of dangers of uh i mean you know we're we're probably not coming from families that fall into gangs or anything like that but i mean i certainly was exposed to gangs and 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 crime activity in the cities uh and i certainly wouldn't want to have a child around that stuff um i was old enough i guess to to sort of handle it but it was a rude awakening for me coming from the suburbs and the suburbs are sort of an all uh, an odd alternative to the cities because they're kind of artificial in many ways, and they're also very poor in terms of a community, I would argue. And the one thing about rural areas is that even though there are less opportunities to meet, you know, your, your sort of get-up-and-go types, uh, there, are, there are people who are there that remember who you are because there's just less uh, interactions every day uh, with different types of people. And so you end up developing a little bit stronger bonds, I would argue. And the the sense I would compare it to um, going from like high school to a big university, if any any of you did that. Uh, for me, that was the case. And the sort of sense of community diminished dramatically when I went from high school to uh, university because I was in a big school. And the number of friendships that I developed uh, were... I, much fewer because of that, because there were just so many more people. I mean, I, I knew more people, but it, it, the depth of the relationship was lower. And so I think those are the, the plus sides of living outside of the cities. You just have a, a better w- sense of community. I would caution though, if you do this, uh, education is going to be very important because, uh, be aware that there is no romantic rural America that is, is rich in wisdom. It, these people, they also watch television, okay? And if you're going to form communities, you need to have, and you're going to raise children, you need to educate them because otherwise they will watch television and think the, the world that 
the culture disorder presents to them is is the truth, and they'll want to move to a big city. That's the first that's correct. That's, that's that's the, one of the biggest yeah. problems rural communities have is that the kids want to leave. That's exactly the, right. The, the and there's a real education to be found living in in trash world. Uh, there there is something to be said for trash world as an educational device. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't keep your your kids away from it completely. But it's uh, it's also they anyway. Go go ahead, Storm. You were going to say. Oh, I was going to say the, uh, the absolute best way to go about doing this, and this is not going to be something that a lot of people can do, but. I think if uh, people thought about this more and there was more discussion of this everywhere in our circles, it could be done is to move with others, perhaps with other families to the same general area. And the more that gets done, the more you can rely on each other uh, and deliberately create the type of community, you know, instead of just being, I'm the one, I'm the one guy woke on everything uh, and woke on, on industrial society and moved out of the country with my family alone. Uh, you can do it with others. You can move your family out. That's there. the can, best way to do your it. friends. That's, that's you're cre- creating a community, yeah. right? That's right. Um, now, that's on some right. other things that were mentioned, uh, um, there's a really good book you should check out. It's called the uh, The Last Child of the Woods: Nature Deficit Disorder. There are a lot of um, bonuses and boons to your health just from being regularly exposed to the rural environment. It's better on your psyche, your stress levels. You sleep better. You'll have a um, a more intense connection to your uh, uh, circadian rhythms. Kids will grow up being skin. exposed to more clear skin. Yeah, it's going to be. You'll feel better. That's and I had thing. the same experience as Adam because I I went to a country high school. Like I graduated with like um, my senior year was like forty people. <laughs> and so and then I moved to the big city following the the dream. You know, of course, because uh-huh. I didn't know any better. Right. And uh, it's the exact same experience. It was it was awful. Yeah. That's one thing that I, you know, I noticed whenever I went rural for either a vacation or just time off or see family, you know, my skin would just feel better. Especially if I stayed over the course of several days, I just I wouldn't feel almost like this uh, this tingling sensation throughout the days. You know, when walking around a metro area, it slowly a lot of slowly, that is uh, is uh, is all the um, like Wi-Fi and stuff and. Uh, a lot of the air pollution and right. fluorescent lights, all that stuff's very irritating to your skin. You know, yeah, few people know this, but we are actually your skin. A... It, it totally fries your your frontal cortex. I honestly think that, yes, you know one one of the one of the strangest side effects that is often also um, not discussed, certainly, but not any of these fucking losers in like mainstream environmental activism, is the psychological impact of. A lot of these are, I guess, any environmental policies or any environmental developments. Uh, and this, the neurological impact is even worse. I, you know, I got to tell you that uh, I, I know several people, when, you, when I actually pitch this to them, that their frontal cortex is fried, that there's just too much sensation throughout the day. There's too much noise. They're seeing too much. There's, um, I would call it overwhelming geometry. The overwhelming geometry of being in sort of any major metro area where there is an overabundance of rectangles of all various shapes and sizes and colors constantly um, interfering with your general field of vision, making it uh, very difficult for your brain to process exactly how to get around and exactly how to tell where you are geographically and relative to other positions. It fries your cortex. That's why people are mentally exhausted, but often not physically exhausted. At the end of a day, if they work downtown or they work um, just outside of a suburb, it, it has a deleterious effect on your ability 
to actually um, process shapes, to process geography, um, I think to process topography. And the effect, uh, you know, you'll often see in, in futures or, or future hellscape ideas like Blade Runner, um, there's, an, again, an overabundance of this sort of uh, insane geometry, and there's way too much noise, and there's way too many visuals, there's way too many um, phosphorescent lights, uh, there's too much synthetic light in general. Um, it doesn't ever seem to be a moment where there isn't light of some kind. The effect that's going to have on people in 20 or 30 years is going to be uh, incredible, especially when there's a whole generation of human beings born, raised, and dying in those environments. You know, would they ever be able to adapt to an environment that didn't have that constant stimulation? What would be the, the neurological effect of taking them out of it? Um, you know, these are areas that no one, I think, is interested in uh, even understanding or interested in bringing up because, you know, A, most of them are shills, uh, and B, no one really wants to grasp with the idea that we've maybe permanently um, ruined human beings through epigenetic development and not always for the better. You know, biological development is not your friend. It's not always going to be a good thing. In fact, it can often be very bad. Um, you know, a, a good kind of microcosm of this would be um, certain biological developments in um, the Middle East now due to uranium shells or depleted uranium shells from several versions of the Iraq war now, several minor conflicts in neighboring countries. And the biological developments are already being seen in the current generation being born, especially for the last five years and, and certainly now. Those people are going to be permanently genetically altered, uh, very much for the worse, due to this um, impact. I don't know what it'll what it'll do to brain chemistry. People who might be born with entirely new subsets of brain chemistry, of of chemical dynamics in their body in general, uh, of hormone dynamics. And this is something that also the medical field is just simply not prepared to deal with. So in 20, 30 years, you could just see a general breakdown of people's neurological health. Um, and there is no real, so there's definitely no solution to that. It'll just be sort of contending or trying to stave off the problem for as long as possible. Serbia also was uh, inundated with depleted uranium during the bombing campaign 20 years ago. I believe they actually received about 15 tons of that stuff. Um, so watch that space in addition to yeah, the Middle East. When your children are born with three arms, you know you've been visited by Zog. Yeah, uh, I would say in general, hyperstimulus causes um, depression, anxiety of any kind, really. Yeah, hyperstimulus is going to mess you up. Uh, it could be sonic hyperstimulus in the form of loud noises will eventually degrade your hearing. Uh, I don't know about smells, but I assume that there's something there. You know, if you were constantly around tons of crazy smells all the time. I'm sure that would do something too. Pornography is a hyperstimulus that ruins your reproductive system. Every hyperstimulus is bad for you. And yeah, I talked to garbage the most actually. That, that is true with respect to smells. Huh. Really? Yeah. What do they, they say they, about it? Well, they just, they're just less sensitive to smells in general because of the, their constant exposure to, to excessive smells. They just say, yeah. you know, they don't, they don't you know, it's like, hey, do you smell that? Nope. 
I well, that, that's it. a general pattern of the brain. It it just sort of gets used to things, and so if you're used to a high high level of stimulation, and you're suddenly deprived of that. It's like an addict going through withdrawals, um, with anything. I mean, so, I mean, I, maybe there's a good way to spin that though. I mean, if you're sort of having withdrawals from nature, maybe you know that's a good good instinct for people to have. Um, I was going to uh, to read a couple of people's observations about you know, collapse scenarios. So the the article I think I mentioned a few weeks ago from a, a f- former Facebook employee deciding to leave the Silicon Valley grind for some of the reasons we're talking about, but more kind of the, the general sort of social splits he was seeing between the sort of technocratic elite and the rest of us uh, was primarily motivating his his decision to to get out uh and he ended up buying a retreat uh north of seattle close to vancouver and the the primary reason he cited was that the uh the developments uh from these technocratic elites are are driving driving a sort of automation trend uh with with no brakes on it that could in his view lead to a revolution so he says within 30 years half of humanity won't have a job it could get ugly there could be a revolution you don't realize it but we're in a race between technology and politics and technologists are winning so any comments on that i'll say uh the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race (laughs) well for (laughs) for most of us it would seem some of us have uh, billions of dollars. Well, not on this call, at least, but uh, some people. Uh, yeah. Had I billions of dollars, I could fix it, I promise you. <laughs> okay, one more. So this is from Dmitry Orloff, and he has a article, which I'll link to, uh, from uh, his blog, where he goes through five stages of collapse. So stage one, and I actually, before I, uh, well, I'll, I'll finish this, then I'd like you to sort of mentally note where you think we are on this uh, list of stages. Uh, so I'll, I'll save my opinion until everybody else gets theirs in. But stage one, a financial collapse. Faith in business as usual is lost. Uh, stage two, commercial collapse. Faith that the market shall provide is lost. Stage three, political collapse. Faith that the government will take care of you is lost. Stage four, social collapse. Faith that your people will take care of you is lost. Stage five, cultural collapse. Faith in the goodness of humanity is lost. So where do you guys think we are? Personally, I'm at stage five. I think that all five trends probably exist at once at varying levels. I mean, you know, the crisis situation is maybe when three or four have hit um, a point where 80, 85% of your population believes them thoroughly, right? I don't think that they're necessarily all predicated on one another. Um, And certainly there are examples of countries where there's very little faith in the political system, but there's an incredible amount of faith in Uh, money-making. There's also situations where there's very little faith in the uh, money-making or the economic system or cultural system, but there is some strong amount of faith in uh, a centralized leader. A good example of that, I think, would be like Belarus. Belarus is probably a, a good example, actually, of a stable country, even though most people have, a, I think, a cynical attitude towards uh, 
their cultural dynamics and their economic dynamics. You know, the worst case scenario is, of course, um, complete political destabilization, cultural destabilization, and economic destabilization. If you have those three at the same time, and, you know, maybe slightly different levels, um, any 70 to 80 percent of your population experiencing them, there's very little you can do to uh, ride out the storm, let's call it. Uh, in today's case, you'll have external forces try and prevent the situation from getting worse. So when countries start to hit that point, a country like the United States might come in, or the international community might show up, or the Russians might show up, or the Chinese might show up, as they've been doing in Africa now, and, and in some cases have been doing in parts of Pakistan. Uh, but if you get into a, a situation where those countries are experiencing these problems around the same time, they're experiencing them coterminously, then there's very little that can be done. Um, you know, once a certain part of your population, I think maybe 70%, uh, is experiencing at least those three primary forces, um, it's a self-perpetuating cycle of decline. There's no real getting out of it. Your civilization is going to decline rapidly. When you hit, when you hit a point when um, people have no faith in each other, that's when the real um, factionalization and balkanization hits in, and people separate along tribal lines, they separate along religious lines, they separate locally, um, they separate ideologically, and then it's a matter of you know different enforcement of law. It's, you know the, the central authority has very little power, even um, various levels of the you know decentralized hierarchy have very little power at that point. And then you know you hit like. Uh, Mad Max scenarios, uh, you know, the, and you do see that uh, in the Yugoslav civil war to an extent. Um, you see that in Africa almost every year. It's some part of Africa that's, you know, that's a problem. You're starting to see it more and more in several parts of the Middle East and North Africa. Those places have destabilized probably along all five lines that you talked about. And they've destabilized at different levels, uh, but rapidly towards the same end, I would say, for 20 years now. To the point where many of those places are going to be permanently dysfunctional once again. Um, places like Libya, places like Pakistan, places like parts of Syria, places like Iraq are really hitting the point where um, no one really knows what's going on anymore and everyone's just trying to make money or trying to survive. I would add Venezuela to that. Whatever you think about U.S. foreign policy, I mean, it, right. it is a disaster. They've lost their sort of political sovereignty at this point. And uh, everybody's, you know, all the superpowers are basically trying to get their share of what uh, that country has to offer in terms of mineral wealth and whatnot. So what do you do? I mean, if you're in a situation like that, that's sort of what it comes down to. Um, and what are the prospects for America is really what sort of my, you know, my, my what I, you know, lose sleep over because the, the, the ability of the people, quote unquote, to affect change through the political system seems to be nullified at this point. And I don't, you know, short of a yellow vest thing, which, you know, is to be determined if it even accomplishes anything in France, but we haven't even gotten to that level. Uh, I doubt really there's going to be much, much change coming from our government. And so what are you left with to do? And then what, um, what's America going to look like? And how do you leverage that to the best of you and your family's health and stability is, I think, the, the primary question here. I think my advice would be um, 
you need a uh, you need a network. You need to establish a network, and you need to have a plan. And before this really gets going to the point where there's serious destabilization in your everyday life, have a plan. You know, you need to have the skills you're going to need, and you need to be physically prepared for these things. Like just just as an example, right? Um, a lot of people in my extended family. Actually, most of the people, the ones that live around here, um, there's a protocol. So there's two people that can make the phone call and say, hey, go to the lake. And all of us in our cars have a pretty standardized, I guess what you'd call like a 48-hour bag or a bug-out bag. And uh, we all know how to use a map and compass. Actually, one time, uh, just to see if I could do it, I had uh, two weeks off and I spent some of it walking out to this country location just to make sure that I knew, you know, exactly where it was, how to use the map and compass. And I got all the way there and then I got picked up and taken home. So, and, and younger people listening to this, try and try and set your life up where these things will be available to you. My advice is to get married early. If you can um, build these alternative networks, learn the skills you're going to need, you know, uh, that, that's really all you can do. I mean, in a situation where, where everything is out of control like that uh, and when it's, Everything is, um, you know, basically chaos. You're all you're going to really have to rely on is yourself and your family, maybe some close friends and their families. So I mean, that that's all you really can do is be personally accountable for your life and your future, uh, and try and get established as best as you can. Where would you put the uh, priority list in terms of the types of? resources and skills and networks that you you could foresee i can name off a few and then you can sort of sort them out in terms of importance but sure. in, my, in my mind i think uh, you need to have shelter you need to have the ability to um, protect it so you have to have some self-defense capability uh, it, it's always good to have more than one person around so i would add that in that you know you can have somebody will have your back and you can actually get in touch with them so give them maybe a a walkie talkie, you know, or something like that, have good relations with them. And then I would say having a, I mean, it depends on your climate, obviously, but having the ability to, uh, you know, get through a winter. And then I would add in for the obvious points, you know, food and water. And then, you know, longer term, I mean, there's sort of various people I listen to that I consider somewhat knowledgeable about this topic in particular i'm thinking of joel skousen who's written the book called strategic relocation which talks about different regions of the world you can actually move to in the events of uh, certain collapse scenarios uh, in particular he's concerned about nuclear uh, nuclear war uh, but what he says is that if there actually is a, a emp strike in particular which is a form of nuclear attack uh, you basically just launch uh, nuclear uh, warhead and detonated in a high altitude position over a populated area. Uh, what, what he what he actually had to get into a little bit of detail, which I learned recently, is that uh, you actually, in order to take out the U.S. electrical grid, you'd have to detonate six of them simultaneously, and it all has to be done at once because a lot of these systems can actually help get the the knocked out sections on back on on their feet but if you do it all at once it's actually almost impossible to get get done because a lot of these power plants need electricity in the first place to get started so it's sort of like starting a motor you need to have electric starter to uh to power up a diesel or a gasoline engine for example um but what he was saying was that um if something like that happens you're looking at possibly six months 
of zero electricity. So what I would add into the list uh, in terms of the training that I would add in, and I think the example of, you know, can you navigate? Uh, do you know how, do you have an escape route? Do you know how to get around your town without using uh, your stupid phone, your, your smartphone, quote unquote? Um, know your, know your turns, but the, the ability to, to have, uh, what you need without electricity, uh, I think is, is probably one of the things we take for granted the most. So what I would recommend people is just turn your power off and see if you can go for a couple days and see what happens. I mean, your food is actually going to be at the biggest risk, but if, if that is the thing you learn that maybe you need to have, um, a root cellar or something like that, or the ability to have dry foods as opposed to constantly having to go out, get takeout and then live off that. Um, I think these are things that you can sort of prepare for, uh, without, um, you know, breaking the bank. These are very simple things to do, but th- those are off the top of my head, the big things. So where would you storm say like focus on first and then, you know, going down from there? Hmm. Well, it, it's going to depend a lot on what your situation is. So you're going to have to come up with a plan for you and a priority list for you that, that work for you. You know, if you're a college student in the city, um, I would say that the main thing you need to understand is how you're going to get out of that area, where you're going to go, and what skills will you need to do it. So for that, I think you would probably want to practice uh, running through all the steps, you know, um, make sure you know where all your stuff is at, and make sure once you need, you also need to have a plan once you get away. You know, like if you're in a city, the number one priority is to get out of it. And um, one thing that's very important is paying attention and if possible, trying to see it coming because that's very valuable because if you can actually get out before it hits, that's very good. Um, in terms of in general, though, I would say um, most of what you need is in learning skills. Um, can you fish? Can you fish without a fishing pole? Can you forage your area? Can you navigate with a map and compass? Can you tell directions based on just the sun and the shadows? Uh, do you know what you can and can't eat in the wild? Do you know how to hunt? Can you even start a fire uh, without any implements, which is very important and difficult, but it's not that hard once you practice it. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, and it's sort of like two separate skill sets. One, the actual act of getting out, and then another, which would just be um, sustaining yourself to wherever you go for however long it needs. Um, and in terms of picking your location, I would say, just for me, this is my opinion, people differ, but probably the most valuable thing is a uh, somewhere you can reliably fish. That's very important. Or, less reliably, somewhere that's very good hunting grounds. Um, I would practice building traps, stuff like that. I think that's you know, good it, advice. Hunting, hunting is very hard. Yeah. So fishing is yeah, hunting easier. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mean the fishing is easy. You don't you don't expend a lot of energy to fish. Hunting is big risk reward. You know, you put you you burn. Sometimes you'll burn tons of calories trying to get, say, a deer or something and come back with nothing. You know, but you can just sit there on the bank and fish all day, and you can feed a family easily like that. Or if you, you know, well, in a collapse, there's no rule of law anymore. But or you can just set up a net. I mean, frankly, that's that's what the sort of Native American a gill net. Did. Yeah. Yeah, that's the easiest way a gill to, net to get is, calories. is very good because, well, the gill net will catch fish automatically for you. And you can just check it whenever you want and see what's in it. You know, it's basically like a, a really durable net. And you can actually build one at a fishing line. If you had some strong fishing line, you can learn how to tie knots and build one. But, you know, you find a place where the water's narrow or shallow or where, you know, there's it's a high traffic area for fish. They swim through it. They get stuck. They can't back out because of their gills. 
that you well, can just check it right. every four hours. One, one note about building nets, it is not something to be uh, taken lightly. So if you do plan on doing that or wanting to know how to do that, practice it before you're actually in the situation because I can guarantee you, especially if you don't have access to fishing line, you're not going to be able to build a, a proper net. Uh, you can probably, um, or things out of, at least out of things you could find readily available, you could probably build a, uh, I forget what they're called, but they're basically like these little catchment ponds out of rocks. Uh, that's pretty simple to do. And then the fish yeah, yeah. tend to sort of like hang out there and then you can close them off or basically just spearfish them from, from that point. But mm-hmm. it's nets, nets are something that uh, are actually pretty complicated to do correctly because things get tangled super easy, especially in moving water. And so it's definitely something to practice. Yeah. I say in general, the, the most valuable thing is what you know. Because you, you're not guaranteed access to any of your equipment or supplies, but no one can really take away what you know and what you practiced. 